Last week, I, I didn't think through my opening. I asked you a question. How many of you had seen a particular TV show? Not a single one of you raised your hands. I thought about my question this week, and I expect a radically different response. Are you ready for my question, this opening question? How many of you, raise your hand, um, have had the experience of or are currently experiencing childhood? Now, come on. Thank you very much. My goodness, you guys are sleeping. It's really early still, okay? I expect that in about 15, 20 minutes. Um, so this week, again, have you or are you currently experiencing childhood? I want to share a couple stories from my childhood. I had a little brother, Robbie, who's, who's borderline. No, that's not a right. Not, you can't use those words anymore. He's just an edgy guy. <laughs> he's, he's very, very, very um, out there. And well, the word we use for him, he was crazy. He was just, he, that's just, I'll just say it. Um, and there was a word that we could use. See, you couldn't tell Robbie anything. Robbie, he, he had his own mind. He had his own will. And, and boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, you just didn't get in the way of, of Robbie. That's the way my little brother was. Um, but there, there, there was a word that you could use. There were actually two words. One word that was Joe, right? You could say the word Joe to my little brother, and you could get Robbie to do anything, anything at all. Just say, well, Joe would do that. And Robbie's like, oh, eat spinach. He would do anything. And the crazy thing about it was is the word Joe was just three letters, right? It didn't mean anything to anybody else. But to Robbie, the word Joe represented Joe Smith, right, our cousin. He was like the number one linebacker in the nation. I mean, he was just, he was Robbie's idol. Robbie wanted to be Joe Smith. So again, the word Joe, three letters, but Joe represented this middle linebacker, this football player that Robbie desperately, and, and he became, because he's Robbie, um, but, but everything. And the other word is, and this is horrible, 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 I could call him a woman. I know that's so sexist. I'm so sorry. I'll just, I just got to bear this. And I could get him to do anything if, if you called him a woman. I just, just wipe that from your mind right now. Um, so maybe you don't have brothers and sisters, and that, that story doesn't ring a bell at all. Maybe, maybe I'll share this one. Maybe the schoolyard, maybe in the neighborhood. Uh, you know how rumors, right? Rumors, right? You, you, you tell your best friend that you like this girl, or you tell your best friend that you could beat up somebody, expecting that the word that came out of your mouth would stay where you left it with your best friend. Well, lo and behold, that word that came out of your mouth took on a life of its own, right? It, it just... It, it, came, it, it took on courage and a personality. It was a quirky personality, but it took it on anyway. And it, it walked around my neighborhood, and, my, and it went out and did stuff that I didn't want it to do. But once it was out there, it was its own thing. It had a life of its own, and it got around, right? Word got out. Well, then I got beat up because <laughs> I said something about something. Word got out. I didn't do it. It, 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 it just it took on this crazy power of its own, right? Words, once out of your mouth, they do. They simply have a power all their own. Um, they can bring life or death, right? Sticks and stones will break my bones. And the saying goes, words will never hurt me, but they do. Words hurt a lot. And again, the crazy thing is words from a stranger, not so much. But those same words from somebody you know and love can just cut you, just cut you like a knife. It, it, they hurt. They, just, they, they hurt. They identify and they represent us. Right? The Bible says that you shouldn't have to say, I promise or I swear. Why? Because your word should be good enough. Because your word represents you, whether you're an honest person or a dishonest person. Your word, back 
the Middle Ages, contracts, contracts, and lawyers, right? They came in, but before that movement, your word, your word was worth your weight in gold. It, it was everything. It, it was your signature, right? It represented you. It, it was, it was you. If you weren't there, it was you. And more often than not, powerful, powerful words are even more powerful than we are. In fact, many times words can do things that we can't do. Right? I still see myself as skinny Jerry. I, I grew up, I was just skinny and little. And so I always ran the risk of getting picked on by bullies. It's just, if you're skinny and little, you had to figure out something. Well, for me, words became powerful. I kind of became the class clown. Right? Doug would pick on me, and I'd, right? Doug, I, you, you, you look great today, you filthy pig. He's like, what? What? No, yeah, you could break me like a twig. No, Doug, take it easy. And, and so I, I, that became powerful for me. Words became, they would do things that I couldn't do physically, right? And if that wasn't enough, and if, if I couldn't do that, then I would just start a rumor about Doug, and, and I, I could destroy somebody. And I didn't even have to do anything, nothing. Word, words were that, that powerful. The Bible talks about this idea. In fact, here's what God's word says about his own word. We read it just a little bit earlier. I'm going to read two verses of it. Just as the rain and the snow descend from the skies, and I'm going to read this from the message version because we have the kids in here this morning. They're not going to children's church once a month. We have them stay in here, so the rest of you are just, you got your NIVs, so, okay. So just as rain and snow descended from the skies and don't go back until they've watered the earth, doing their work of making things grow and blossom and producing seed for the farmers and food for the hungry, so will the words that come out of my mouth not come back empty-handed. They'll do the work I sent them to do. They'll complete the assignment I gave them, right? So it's almost like God is like he's personifying his words, right, that he spoke, right? He's given his words like a personality and, and again, courage and, and this creative power, human characteristics, right, things that humans have and experience but not inanimate objects, not ideas, you know, not like words, right? So, so Isaiah's kind of personifying the word. And then here's the, here's the creation account to, 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 to kick everything, just to make it even crazier. And, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is chapter 1, verse 3. And then boom, right? It happened just from the words of his mouth. And then he said, let the skies and the heavens come forth. And boom, that's a little shout out to John Madden, any of you, right? Um, and then for the next three days, God tells these things to cooperate and produce lots of good stuff. And boom, using only words, Right? Using only words. Can you imagine? I mean, if you're a young person here, and if you think you're a young person here, that includes everybody, okay? So just by saying the words, can you imagine? Just by saying your words, your room would be suddenly all cleaned up, right? Suddenly all your vegetables would be gone from your plate at dinner, right? I used to pray for that, and it never happened. Suddenly your brother and sister were really, really nice to you all the time. Can you imagine just by saying these words, it happens? Not like words that you got to convince or persuade, but just... They happen. Wouldn't that be crazy, crazy, crazy awesome? Turns out that even for God, just talking about something has its limits. I'm going to explain, right? Just hang tough. And God's words that do all these crazy and wonderful stuff, right? Um, They're more than just words after all. Again, let me explain. First of all, by taking a quick look at one of probably the most mystifying phrases passages from scripture. This is John chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. Kind of like those of you who are history majors, buffs, Winston Churchill's description of the Soviet Union, right? 
He's a, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. This is just like the, the phrase that everybody looks at and goes, yeah, sure, that's Jesus. And really no idea why that's Jesus, but we know because we've been told that's Jesus, right? Which kind of begs the question, why didn't we just say Jesus? Why didn't John just say Jesus in the first place? In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Why, why, didn't, why didn't John just kind of in, at a quick look, think that, that makes a whole lot more sense than making everything convoluted and, and difficult. But the fact of the matter is, if you were Jewish, if you had grown up Jewish and Greek, which if you had grown up in the time of Jesus and you lived in the Holy Land, you would have been also not only Jewish, but you would also have been Greek. To a certain degree, some of the Jews really, really pushed it off the more orthodox, and some of them accepted it a little bit more, but definitely the Greek language and the Greek culture was well known in the Bible land in the time of Jesus, right? So if you were a Jew and you had just heard this, this wouldn't have made any sense. Excuse me, it would have made a lot of sense. If you had grown up Jewish or Greek at the time of Jesus, this would have made a lot of sense, but for us it makes very, very little sense. Um, again, for starters, it doesn't work if you just say Jesus, right? How can Jesus be with God and be God at the same time? Right? That's mystified people since the very, very beginning. And, and John is going to take a stab at explaining that for us this morning. But when John uses the word word, it makes perfect sense to both groups, both Jews and Greeks at the time of Jesus. Again, not so much for us today. Um, I want to explain a very, very, very short lesson on the history of the word, word, to the Jews and the Greeks alike. Um, words. Let me hit that next slide there. To much of the ancient world, and particularly the Jews, um, a word is far more than just a mere sound, right? It was something that had an independent existence, right? It had a power all of its own, an independent existence from the person that spoke it. Once it gets spoken, it's separated from the speaker. It has its own life, its own deal. And, and again, you can see some of these ideas, where this idea came from, or what grew out of this idea is the power of words. You have magic spells, right? It's easy to see how someone would think, well, words are so powerful. We recognize this as human beings. Words do things. So you kind of got this idea evolving magic spells because words can do things, whatever. Um, irrevocable word of rulers, right? I love watching Disney films. And there's always like this idea that, well, the king's law, it can't be changed because once he's spoken it and then some princess or so, well, you're the king. Why can't you change it back? Well, you, that wouldn't have made any sense to them because the ruler's word, once it's out there, it can't be taken back, right? It, that was the whole idea behind the irrevocable word of a ruler or oaths and blessings and curse. I mean, oaths, you think about it in the book of Judges. Right? Some poor fool says, you know, if, if, if God does what he says he's going to do, then I will, I will sacrifice the first person that comes through my doorway. Well, his daughter walks through his doorway. He can't take back the oath. That's how powerful the ancient world is, particularly the Jews. The words were just incredibly, incredibly, incredibly powerful. For this reason, Hebrew has only about less than 10,000 words. Right? They're very, very sparing and careful with their words because their words are... Professor John Patterson wrote this about the Jewish idea of words. The spoken word to the Hebrew was fearfully alive. It was a unit of energy charged with power. It flies like a bullet to its target. Story I read, uh, an, an Englishman traveling in the Middle Eastern desert, a group of Muslims passed by and they, they, they give the customary greeting, peace be upon you. 
I mean, at that moment, the, the group of Muslims passing this Englishman in the Middle Eastern desert didn't recognize that he was a Christian. He looked like a Muslim. You know, he had gear and the whole bit. And as soon as they recognized, as soon as the Muslims recognized that this man was a Christian, they raced back to take the blessing back because they recognized they gave a blessing to an infidel. So, but but that, that, that just illustrates the power of the word. The word can be given, and it can do something, and then if it's not right, you, you take it back. I mean, it's literally you're sending like a person to do your bidding, and then if something goes wrong, hey, hey come on back. Come on back. You're, that didn't work out, right? Come on back. This was the power of words in the ancient world. And again and again, we get this idea when we look at, look at God's word um, chock full, chock full of this idea. In Genesis chapter 27, once Isaac is deceived into blessing Jacob instead of Esau, unlike the Muslim blessing, nothing he could do to take that word back because it had already gone out and it was already doing things, right? You can't undo things that have been done. So the blessing's already out there and he, Isaac couldn't, couldn't take it back. And then again and again, this, this creative, acting, dynamic word of God in Psalm chapter 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. In Psalm 107, he sent forth his word and healed them. And then in Psalm 147, he sent forth his commands to the earth. His word runs swiftly. So even as we know that humans' words have this kind of dynamic activity, how much more so with God's words, right? We get that idea just from our own experience then we kind of transfer it to God, and it takes on so much, so much more. And then there's the first, and this is kind of what I want to drive at this morning. I want to talk about two things this morning. Two, two things from Jewish history, Jewish theological tradition um, that John ties into. Instead of using the word Jesus, he uses the word word. And again, that has this incredibly rich history, and I want to bring out two aspects of that, that rich history to help us understand why Jesus is the Word. Um, so the first of these two is, is what was called the Targums. Um, for 100 years or more before the coming of Jesus, about 100 years B.C., right, um, Hebrew had become a forgotten language. Right, the Hebrew people had been taken to Babylon, and while they were there, it basically, that was one of the things that led to it. Um, wasn't the only cause, it was other causes. But Hebrew had become a forgotten language, and the people were now, when they came back from Babylonian captivity, they were speaking what's called Aramaic. Right, so you would go to your synagogue, and you would expect to hear your Hebrew scriptures, but lo and behold, you come back and you don't understand what the guy is saying up there. It's like in the Middle Ages and the priest is speaking in Latin. You don't speak Latin. You just kind of sit there for the hour, right? Kind of the same thing. The Hebrew people, when they came back, so they would go to synagogue and what would happen to the, the, the rabbis who were learned and they knew they remembered and studied the old language, they would read it in Hebrew, but then they were translated into Aramaic, and the Targums were used as the translations, right? So, and here's the thing. Here's, here's why I bring up the Targums. They were produced in a time when men were fascinated by the transcendence of God, right? The vast differentness of him and the distance between humans and God, right? Um, just kind of a real recap. Transcendence is, is basically the one who's beyond perception, right? Independent of the universe, wholly other when compared to us. Transcendent away, different. And then we have this word eminent, right? One who exists within, within us, within the universe, right? Very much a part of the universe, right? If something is eminent, it's like right there. Now, the problem 
or the tension for the translators of old Hebrew scripture into Aramaic so that people could understand what was being said is these men who wrote the Targums were at that time, they were, again, totally fascinated with the transcendence of God. And so they would bend over backwards whenever scripture talked about God doing something a little too human or a little bit too eminent right, because human is common right here. We all see it. And, if, and, and seeing God do something like, like go to the bathroom, just, just, just an example there, you, 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 like your view of God lowers, doesn't it? Just, just a little bit, you think, what, well, well, that's what humans do, not God. And so this is exactly what the writers of the Targums were trying to prevent, right? Anything that would make God less than God and making him appear human That's called anthropomorphism. Hit that next slide. I think I've got that up there. Hopefully I do. Anthropomorphism refers to something non-human as behaving as human. Right? So remember, um, personification giving human characteristics to inanimate objects like the word or a flower or the, the wind, right? The wind tore at his jacket, right? The wind suddenly has fingers, right? But it's an inanimate object, okay? Um. But anthropomorphism, giving human characteristics and form to non-human. Think Daffy Duck and Donald Duck, right? More often than not, it's human characteristics put into animals, right? That's anthropomorphism, giving them human form, anthropo, human, morph, form, or a god, right? If you're not careful, you end up with a Donald Duck, but he's your god. It makes sense what's going on here, right? So... Um, whenever the old Hebrew scripture spoke of God in an overly human way, the Targums trans, um, what is the word, um, substituted the phrase the word of God for whatever it was that God was doing that sounded too human. Okay? Now, we're not talking about, as I was talking about earlier, when God's words did something, right? By the, by God, by the word of God, the earth was formed. That's talking about his actual words. Here we're talking about something radically different. Okay, here's what's going on. So let me show you how it would work. This is Exodus chapter 19, verse 17. If you open up your Bibles right now, your NIVs, this is what you'll read. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. Well, the writers of the Targums thought, well, that's a little bit too human about the way to talk about God, like he sees us and we see him. That makes him a little bit too human, so they changed it. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet the word of God. So this phrase, word of God, replaces anything that God is doing that's a little too eminent, a little bit too human. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3. What we have in our Bibles, be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring flame, fire. And then the Targums have it as the word of God is the consuming fire. Again, notice that the word of God here is not referring to the actual words that God spoke. The phrase, the word of God, is referring to God's actions, what he's doing other than actually speaking. Right, so the phrase, the word of God, is replacing any human behaviors that God exhibits that just seems too lowly, common, and human, right? Here's the last one from Isaiah about creation. You would read, my hand, my own hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. But in the Targums, you would read, by my word, I have founded the earth, and by my strength, I have hung up the heavens, It was just a little bit of separation to make sure that God stays different from mere humans. Keep that. that. Now, again, here's the problem. The Bible is chock full of both. There's just this incredible tension. God is 
incredibly, incredibly transcendent, right? He created the, I mean, he's just like, he's all that. But at the same time, if you read Hebrew scripture, he's like, cares about every little detail in our life. He is so incredibly eminent, but he's also transcendent. So the writers of the Targums, like, they had to find a way and they kind of sacrificed his eminence. And they made him seem very far away and they were literally replaced his name with the phrase, the word of God. And again, any devout Jew would immediately recognize the phrase because they heard it every single Saturday in synagogue. Right? This phrase, it was on everybody's lips, the word of God. The word of God is almost like shalom. You, just, you heard it all day long, the word of God, because you didn't want to say God. Every Jew was speaking, used to speaking of the memra, the word of God. So that's the first development, this, 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 the targums and this, this phrase, the word of God that replaces God's name and anything that God does, now the word of God does it. Kind of strange, kind of strange. Now, the second part of this, second development in Jewish history and theological tradition, kind of thoughts leading up to it to help us understand John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, is, is the wisdom literature, right? We have the book of Job, we have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, uh, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Um, those are what we consider the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And then there's a couple more I've thrown in there. They're from the, we've been talking about this, the intertestimonial documents, the, the Apocrypha. There's a couple very important ones. One's called the Wisdom of Solomon. The other one is Ecclesiasticus. Not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus, or the Wisdom of Sirach, right? And in these books, a certain passage, quite a few passages, in fact, they give a kind of a mysterious life-giving and eternal power to wisdom, Right? They personify wisdom. I mean, wisdom, again, is an inanimate object. It's a concept. It's an idea, but they make it into a person, the writers, in a way that not, it's, not almost, it's, it's not a literary technique almost. It's almost, like, again, like there's this other per, agent, not person. I won't even say that. Another agent at work, a creative power or agent of God doing stuff. And it's called the Word of God, and it's called wisdom. They're not persons. Just these ideas that kind of work with God, right? So again, wisdom has been personified and is thought of as the eternal agent of God. A couple examples from the book of Proverbs. She, wisdom, is the tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. The passage continues. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundation. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. And by his knowledge, the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. So we've already seen how Jesus replaced the name, or excuse me, the Jews replaced the name and the behaviors and the actions of their powerful and creative God with that phrase, word of God. In this second development, or the other side of it, is beginning to emerge, right? Wisdom is now God's agent, Again, he's not a person, he's not a co, but he's this funny word, agent, like this, this power, something that goes out and does stuff, does stuff. And then from chapter 4 of Proverbs, hold on to instruction, do not let it go, guard it well, for it is your life. Wisdom, then, is light and life of men. If you understand Jewish culture, Hebrew culture, light and life both represent, they're, they're, they're almost synonymous, the opposite words are, are darkness and death. Right? Darkness and death go together. Light and life, they just, they just go together. And in this passage from Proverbs chapter 4, wisdom is light and life. This is what John is referring to in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1 of his prologue. Listen to this. In him was life, and in that life was the light of all mankind. 
The light shines in the darkness, and darkness is not overcoming. What's John referring to right there? That Jesus is wisdom, right? This thing that was personified in the, in the, the wisdom literature, like John's like, that's Jesus. Wisdom, that, that's Jesus. That, that, that's Jesus. Now, again, couple this thought with the fact that all Greeking thinks at this time, all thinking Greeks at this time of the world, right, they, they understood a word, word logos, that's the Greek word. And again, John was one of those thinkers in the Greek world. And again, all thinkers in the Greek world understood that Greek word logos word to mean the, the reason or the mind behind all that you see in this beautiful, crazy, awesome earth, right? All the perfect order, the seasons, how everything just works like just so well. What's behind all that, right? What's behind all that? It's the mind of God. That's kind of what the Greeks, that, that, that was their, their philosophical, theological world. Behind everything beautiful and orderly is the mind or the reason of God. And in fact, they would take it one step further and they would say that somewhere out there, there was a perfect pattern of perfection, but we're not seeing it right here. We're seeing a shadow of that perfect. John comes in and says, you know, that perfect, that perfect, that reason behind everything, that perfect, that's Jesus. You've been searching for him all the time. That's Jesus. That idea that for thousands of years you Greeks have been searching and I've identified him. It's Jesus. So by the time of Jesus and the New Testament writers, the word of God, right, that phrase, and the wisdom of God, they're the same. They've They've come together and they've come the same exact same thing. This can be seen in, in an intertestimonial book called The Wisdom of Solomon. I'm going to show you a short little passage here. The writer can talk of the wisdom of God or the light and life of God and the word of God or the creative power of God in the same sentence and have the exact same meaning. Listen to this. This is from The Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 9, verse 2. O God of my fathers and Lord of mercy, who has made all things with thy word and ordained man through thy wisdom. So those two it's kind of Hebrew parallelism there. They're saying the same thing, but with different words. But wisdom and word, right? The word and wisdom. John says the word and the wisdom is actually Jesus. Right? This person, this, these things that you've been living with, you Jewish people, you Greek people, these ideas that you've been living with and you've been searching, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So when John uses the term word rather than Jesus... He's drawing from and speaking into several of his own Jewish theological traditions and from the Greek world as well. The word, right? More than a mere sound, right? The ordinary word, which in itself is not merely a sound, but a dynamic thing, right? The word of God by which God created the world. And then there's the word of the Targums, right? Which express the very idea of the action of God. And then there's the wisdom of the Jewish and the Greek wisdom literature, which was the eternal creative and illuminating power of God. And John latches on to all of this and encapsulates all of this in these two verses. <laughs> Boom. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Basically, if you wish to see the word of God, right, that creative power of God through which the world came into existence... Look at Jesus, right? In verses 4 and 5, in him was life. And that life was the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. If you wish to see that word, right, which gives light and life to every person, where do you look? You look at the king of kings. It's like Douglas said. You look to Jesus. 
He's both the word of God from the Targums and the wisdom of God from the wisdom literature. Become flesh and dwelt among us. See, now the whole entire passage makes perfect sense, right? Words are the mind and will of an individual that can take on a life of its own, right? The word or Jesus, he can be God. In the, in, in kind of in the, right, um, in the sense that he embodies all the creative power, the word of God, and the wisdom, and the knowledge of God, and at the same time, he can be with God, meaning that he's separate from God. He's not God. He's separate from God, and that's hard to get your heads around. Jesus is not the same as God. There are two separate personhoods in this. We call them God, but there are two separate personhoods. So God can, Jesus, or the word can be separate from God in the sense that once words leave our mouth, they do have a power and a personhood all of their own. This is kind of what John is, is drawing from. True with us, even more true with God. And John is claiming that not only can it happen, but it did happen over 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. The wisdom of God, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. There's no one who can explain. And I use that term very widely, explain, right? With words, with actions, with examples, with stories. There's no one who can explain the vast otherness or the transcendence of God in ways that we can understand and grasp and emulate and practice and, and all of that more completely than the completely eminent person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word and wisdom of God. He's the best explanation of God, right? Which helps us explain these other two often confusing terms. How can Holy Spirit or how can Holy Scripture be God's word and Jesus is also God's living word, right? I, I know as a kid growing up, I was like, ah, that makes no sense. Well, Holy Scripture is God's word in the sense that it, they are the mind and will of God, expressed as words on a page written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, right? This is why Jesus could claim to be the fulfillment of the law. And if we reject him, or excuse me, if we reject the law, we reject him, Right? Jesus is the words on the page in human form. And again, Jesus is God's living word in the sense that he perfectly represents the mind and will of God in the form of a human being. Again, why is all this important? Because when Scripture or Jesus Christ says that God loves you, that he'll forgive your sins, that he wants to give you new life, you can believe him. If Jesus Christ says something... That is the words and thoughts of God. You can trust him. You can trust him entirely. I want to close by reading that promise read earlier. Patty read for us. Maybe if you, if you want to close your eyes and just take in the words of Isaiah, speak in the words of God, right? God's own words. Listen to this. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call on him while he was near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Right? He's, he's basically saying, you all have trouble forgiving, but not the king of kings. Keep that in the back of your mind. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
just as the rain and snow descended from the skies and don't go back until they've watered the earth, doing their work of making things grow and blossom and producing seeds for farmers and food for the hungry, so will the words that come out of my mouth. And even as we say that phrase right there, we, we see Jesus Christ. We see the, the words of God take on human form and go out and do things, do God's will, and does it without turning back until the job is complete. So the words, so will the words that come out of my mouth not come back empty-handed. They'll do the work I sent them to do. They'll complete the assignment I gave them.